What makes a great leader great? How do we create a high-performing team? And when we say leader, we mean everyone, because everyone is leading their own life. Will yours be a life by design or a life by default? Those are the big questions, and this podcast will answer them. Welcome to the Becoming Your Best podcast, where we help you apply the 12 principles of highly successful leaders, because great leaders will produce great results. Welcome to all of our Becoming Your Best podcast listeners, wherever you may be in the world today, we are so honored to have you with us, and this is going to be an interesting podcast today. This is your host, Steve Schallenberger, and we have a very interesting guest with us today with over two decades of internet experience at the executive level. He is an internet industry veteran, and in addition to his Shark Tank appearance, he's been featured nationally on CNN Money, People Magazine, the Adam Carella Show, and, and many others. So welcome, Stefan R. Stahl. Did I say that right? Yep, you got it right, Steve. Thank you. Nice to be here. Okay. Yeah, I love that name. It's a good one. <laughs> and uh, well, let's get right into it. And I'd like to tell you a little bit more about Stefan. In 2015, to challenge long-held delusions about unhealthy startup work cultures, Stefan moved his whole company to a five-hour workday and would later write a book entitled The Five-Hour Workday about the experience, which would spread the idea to tens of millions of people worldwide and get press in over 20 countries like New York Times, Wall Street Journal, many more. He was subsequently hailed the world's best boss by Hamburg's Germany's number two newspaper, Morgan Post, and America's best boss by the UK Daily Mail. In 2017, Stefan was named to our city's 2017 list of the top 10 most influential business leaders in San Diego. So way to do it, Stefan. That's great. <laughs> hey, thanks for the intro, Steve. Okay, now the, get us going. Tell us about your background, like including any turning points in your life that's had a significant impact, and how did you get to where you're at today? Sure. Uh, yeah, so I, I went to grad school down here in San Diego and then and came out in 1999, right, as sort of the internet boom was happening. And I went right into the internet space. They were just hiring grad students to, and I, so I started in a company in the radiology world. And that's really where I cut my teeth in, um, you know, learning internet marketing and how uh, internet business models were sort of transforming the world. And so after about five years of that, uh, 2004, I, I went off on my own. I worked a sort of a side gig for about a year with a, a poker chip company, like ah, high poker chips called <laughs> pokerchips.com for home games. You know, people, uh, you know, they want to buy a $500 set of poker chips. They would come to us wow. with the same chips as, uh, as Vegas. I don't know if you play poker, um, <laughs> but there was a boom in poker at that time. And I sort of realized that and I went to buy poker chips and it was hard to get them. So I said, well, you know, I'll make poker chips and we'll sell them online, direct to consumer. And so I did that uh, for about five or six years and it went really well. I thought I was going to retire. And then it sort of like everything online got commoditized and uh, a lot of competition came in. They saw what I was doing 
that came down to where I was, you know, job hunting in about 2010 wow. and looking for other businesses to start. And that's when I started Tower Paddleboards, which is my main company now that I've been running for the last 10 years. It's a direct-to-consumer stand-up paddleboard company, but it really it's a, it's a more holistic beach lifestyle company. And we've started some offshoots of that. Uh, one is Tower Electric Bikes, which we started about you know, two years ago. And it's basically, you know, high quality electric bikes at half price because we sell them direct to consumer. In 2012, we were on uh, Shark Tank. We got uh, Mark Cuban to invest 150,000 for 30% of our company. At the time, we had about $100,000 in sales lifetime in the history of Tower Paddleboards. Since then, we've gone on to do over 40 million in sales and we're one of Mark Cuban's best investments in the history of the show. So we've had some success. In 2014, we were the number one fastest growing company in San Diego. Uh, the next year, we were on the Inc. 500. So we had this you know, good run as a startup, and we wanted to say, how do we make this really you know, a $100 million company? That's really when we came up with the idea of the five-hour workday, uh, because we were this beach lifestyle company, but we were operating more like a startup with long hours. You know, We were two blocks from the beach, but we weren't using the beach. So we said, if we want to really build a big company... We need to be a little bit more like, you know, Patagonia or something where we really live the ideals of our brand and the five hour workday really dovetailed with that. So that's what we did. And we did an experiment for initially it was going to be three months, but it worked so well. We continue to do it for a couple of years. OK, whoa, that's a fun background. So the paddleboard is the type of thing that you stand on in a lake or a river, kind of like a surfboard, right? Yep, yep, and paddle around. Okay, and the e-bike is what we see uh, someone tootling around in the city on. Is that it? They pick it up somewhere, and is that? Yeah, okay. yeah. It's, really, it's really transforming transportation. It's not like uh, overseas in Europe and China, they look at bikes as transportation, but in the U.S., they do not look at bikes as transportation. It's a very rare, small percentage of the population that commutes to work on a bike, Right. But with e-bikes, it's starting to change, you know, bicycles from being like a recreation thing to more of like a transportation alternative. So it's a bicycle with an electric motor. Yeah. Yeah. And you can go, you know, 25 miles an hour on these and you can have a range of 50 to 80 miles. OK. So wow. You can uh, open up your uh, community. And so did I hear you say, Stefan, that you are selling a, a personal model? Yeah, so we sell two models. It's like a beach cruiser. It's like an electric beach cruiser. So we have a men's bike and a women's bike. We only have two models, uh, but it works, you know, for pretty much anybody. Okay, great. Well, tell us what it was like being on Shark Tank. And is uh, Mark a, a part owner of both of your companies or just one of them? Yeah, he's a part. Of, he owns 30% of all our companies. And we've sort of, he started and bought into Tower Paddleboards, but anything we do, do sort of a derivation or we start some new business entity, he owns a, a portion of that. We've started a couple other businesses. Tower Beach Club is an event space in San Diego here. Uh, that's kind of had a rough run the last year in the pandemic. Yeah, imagine. Events. <laughs> uh, and then another company called uh, nomiddleman.com, which is a it's an aggregation of all the direct-to-consumer uh, brands in the world. It's just sort of an information source, kind of the anti-Amazon. Uh, you know, Amazon. Okay, and what was it like being on Shark Tank? Were you nervous? I wasn't really nervous going on there, but I did uh, screw up my pitch. I'm known as uh, you know, one of the worst pitches <laughs> in the history of Shark Tank that still landed a deal uh, because I went in there. My slideshow didn't work. I forgot my pitch. I was stuttering and stammering, you know, and, and silent for like five minutes. And they were tearing into me. 
So I had to make like a Rocky like comeback. <laughs> but it made for good TV, Steve. <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, how's it been working uh, with the shark? It's been good. You know, Cuban's been, you know, very good to us, I think, because we've done well for him. If we weren't doing so well for him, I think it wouldn't be going so good. You know, he has sort of expectations, but, you know, he put in 150000 and I think we've cashed him out well over a million dollars in dividends to date. And, you know, he still has his equity position. So uh, we've kept him happy and, uh, you know, he's been very supportive of us. And would you say that uh, he has contributed to your growth? He's helped? I mean, definitely. When we when we signed him on, I looked at him, his investment more as a celebrity endorsement as opposed to just getting money. And so we became, we went from being, you know, the nothing, nobody tower paddle boards to the Mark Cuban uh, owned paddleboard company. And, you know, we put his face and this was part of my negotiation was I'm like, Mark, I want to put your face right on our website. Are you OK with that? And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, I'm not going to like handhold you and do introductions and, and, you know, do a bunch of work for you, but definitely leverage <laughs> my brand. Uh, he was all about that. He's just like, yeah, that's what you should do. That's a smart move. And so, uh, you know, we've done that. And he's been he's been invaluable to me because, I mean, you've run several companies. and It's a little uncomfortable when you're at the top of a company and you come from a background of working in, in a company where you have people over you. And a lot of people are like, oh, I want to work for myself so I don't have to deal with any of these guys. But really, when you're making the final decision, it's a very uncomfortable thing. So yeah. what's been nice about with Cuban is it's, it's my company. You know, I'm the, the dominant owner. I own 70 percent. So I can really do whatever I want to. But when I really have questions and I'm not sure on things, I can throw it over the wall and get his you know, opinion on it. So it's kind of like having that CEO over over top of me when I need it. So that's been uh, that's been very useful. Yeah, that's invaluable, isn't it? There's nothing like being able to pass by your ideas and especially when you've given it your best shot and say, how do you see it? Yeah, exactly. And I've learned in, in dealing with Cuban because early on I would pass everything by him. And then, you know, I'm thinking about this for, uh, you know, several weeks in depth thought. He looks at it for five minutes and responds you know, to my email in 10 minutes and he says, no, I don't like that. And then I'm like, why? Have you, have you really thought about this? <laughs> so I've learned to only throw, if I, if I just want to do something, I do it and I inform him. Inform him. <laughs> if I have a question, ask him a question. But that, that took a little getting used to. <laughs> yeah, well, that's great. That's uh, wonderful to see things from a whole different point of view. Well, let's uh, shift our discussion. And what prompted you to move your company to a five-hour workday? You kind of touched on it a little bit, but let's go through this a little bit more in depth. Yeah. So that was really it is we wanted to, I mean, uh, one of the big impetuses here was I had some really rock star employees. That's why we had that significant growth because we were, you know, able to attract pretty good people. And then I had some that, you know, weren't so good. And I said, man, it would be great if I had a company of just like these high performing individuals. How do I attract them and retain them? And I sort of thought like how I was working and the incentives I had as an entrepreneur, you know, I would come in, get my work done and get out of there. You know, I would walk out of the office at one o'clock and I kind of felt kind of guilty for leaving my employees behind. But I'm like, I earned this. And then I said, wow, it would be interesting if we could do that for the whole company and give them the same incentives that I have. So when we rolled it out, I, I just sort of announced to everybody, I said, hey, we're going to do a five hour workday this summer. We're going to work 8 a.m. to 1 p.m. straight through no lunch. Uh, so there's no time, you know, wasted before and after lunch and the, and the food coma and all that. And so I'm going to you're going to walk out at one o'clock. I'm basically going to give you your life back. You know, your work week will be better than most people's vacation weeks. And then you have the weekends as well. 
But my ask is you have to be as productive or more productive or you're going to be fired. Give them their lives back, but put pressure on them, which I thought was very aligned with the incentives that, that I had myself, you know, and other entrepreneurs had. And uh, we did an experiment for three months and it productivity was great. You know, people just figured out how to do their job faster, no matter what their job was. So we extended it and we continued to do it for two years. So we, there were some problems uh, for sure. We ended up going to just summers only after the first two years because of, you know, we had a downturn in our business. And now in the pandemic, we didn't do it at all because we were, we were sort of in rough times. We had to just fight for our survival. And then this year, now we're ramping it back up to where we're going to do it. But we're only going to do it for four months every year from August 1st to the end of November, following years that we increase revenues. So if revenues are going down, we're going to you know, roll up our sleeves and work. But the company can earn sort of this company-wide bonus of this you know, sort of incredible workday for four months if everything's going in the right direction. Yeah. Is that legal in California, working straight through? <laughs> I mean, I don't really worry too much about the legalities of it, but I think it actually is like the five hours you don't have to give breaks or something like that. Everybody's on salary. It's not like we're yeah, okay. they're treated good. If someone wants to complain, they can complain. Yeah, right. Okay. So what are the lessons you've learned over the years after implementing a shorter workday? You know, it, what it, the positives that it did was it really turned us into a productivity-focused uh, company where everybody was looking for and identifying sort of productivity tools uh, to how do we how do we do our job faster? You know, what didn't work, uh, what I was sort of disappointed and really why we got away from it with the full time is it didn't help uh, attract and retain people. I mean, I tend to hire people that are coming straight out of school. We have, you know, turnover, you know, every two, three years. And I don't think people maybe times are just really good right now, but I don't think people care what you pay them or what their work hours. I mean, they could go work, you know, 80 hours or 95 hours a week at Tesla or, you know, Wall Street, or they could work 25 hours at a surf company. They don't really care. If they're aligned with the the company ideals, they're going to do it and they're going to be happy to do it. And then if I bring people in or in the early days or bringing them in at 36,000 a year, I would, a rock star could raise that salary to set to double, you know, 70,000 within a couple of years because we really move those people up and we fire the other people and then they would leave. So I don't think money motivates these people or ours. It re- what really motivates them is alignment with what you're doing. And so that was sort of a surprise to me. Like you, it's not a hack. The five hour workday is not a hack to get and retain workers. And when I wrote the book, uh, the five hour workday, I wasn't trying to write a book here, but I, I was writing articles about what we were doing. And they would just, there was this great response to what we were doing. Like, 10,000 comments or something like that. Just nuts. So I'm like, well, we'll write a book and we'll put a book in every paddleboard we sell, right? And that will spread our, our message and sort of the alignment with our brand. And in writing that book, I had to go back and research the history of work. And we found out that the eight-hour workday, I assumed it was just always existed, but it was actually invented in the early 1900s. It was basically, you know, Ford Motor Company and some other people. Right. It was basically the industrial revolution. The, the eight-hour workday was a reaction to that. And how do you get machines working 24 hours a day and people working in eight-hour shifts? Fast forward 100 years, we're using basically a workday that was optimized for a factory floor, which is kind of uh, crazy. Yeah, indeed. And I would guess that uh, just thinking about uh, the different industries, it may depend a little bit whether it works. Uh, like, you know, if you work for a bank and you're competing against a bank that has certain hours or uh, in a service industry where, you know, you can 
only service, uh, there's certain hours you can service. It may depend a little bit on the industry. What, what have you found on that? You know, that's what I, I think people just assume. And I think it's wrong there because a lot of people are like, oh, sure, that's going to work for your internet marketing company, but it's not going to work for us. We changed our customer service and our store hours to five hours. We put the changed hours on our website. You know, we're not a 7-Eleven. It's not like people are buying paddle boards, you know, 24-7. Yeah, right, yeah. They know your hours. They sort of go around that. Uh-huh. Same thing with our our, um, our shipping department, you know, and our warehousing. You, they they were like, well, this is really isn't going to work for us because we got to ship the same number of packages. And we're barely able to do that now. And we were probably going to grow 50% this year. So how is this going to work? But what they did is they used learned to use the software that they were already using. They just learned to use it better. And they cut down the shipping time from, you know, five minutes to like 2.6 minutes of every package because you put pressure on them. And that pressure sort of built better means. And that really was the key. And if you look at a lot of industries, when you, you put an unre- unrealistic constraint upon people, it forces creative thinking. If you look at like, you know, Amazon, basically Amazon doesn't really, I mean, they do now, I think, but historically they don't answer the phone. You can't call them. You would think like that's not going to work, that business model. But they figured if somebody needed to call us, something about our model was broken because there there was a way to automate all of that communication and just fix all of the problems so you don't, you know, initiate a phone call. And that's what sort of five-hour workday mentality gets at. Um, you know, today with the, the pandemic, there's been an artificial constraint put upon everybody where you can't travel and you have to work from home. And that constraint, I believe, is going to create a lot of uh, sort of creative solutions to problems and will rethink the way we work. And I think we're going to rethink and there's going to be better outcomes. So, Stefan, how did you ultimately find out a shorter workday doesn't make business sense, businesses more profitable and productive and employees happier, healthier, more loyal. I mean, what what did you find out on that? What was your experience? Well, I, I mean, as you know, Steve, there's there's a lot of variables in any business. But um, when we implemented the five-hour workday, we did about $5 million in revenue that, uh, the year that we sort of implemented it. The next year, we did 7.5. So I thought, this is working, right? <laughs> but then we sort of plateaued. I think the next year, we did like 7.2. And then we started to decline, you know, 5.1, 4.3, and then $2 million. So we went from 7.5 to $2 million. You know, the first two years was uh, round, year-round, uh, but then we went to summers only, but, you know, things were declining. And uh, so I, at some point I said, well, maybe this isn't working. You know, it was an experiment, so I didn't want to. And as you, your revenues uh, decline, you don't really have the luxury of doing experiments. Um, so we sort of got rid of it. And really where it dawned on me that this is not working, and the, the, the moment we got uh, away from the uh, year-round five-hour workday was – I had nine people at the time, and within a 90-day period, four of those employees left. You know, one of them uh, I fired, so that was my fault, but, you know, they weren't performing well. Right. Um, and then uh, three others left. I mean, these are young kids being paid well. They have a five-hour workday, and they're leaving. So my whole original premise of, you know, attracting and retaining people with this sort of renegotiation with labor of a five-hour workday wasn't working. And I said – I don't know why, but it's not working. We seem to be productive. So we got away from it at that point. You know, I think really what happened there is we broke the company culture. I mean, we were a startup before. And I think when you're, you know, working in the trenches, you know, alongside other people in the startup, uh, long hours, you form these very strong bonds. And then when you walk out of the the, the office at one o'clock, you know, your work life is just this little thing you do before lunch that sort of affords you this, this you know, great lifestyle 
but the rest of your life gets much bigger. That's great for employees, but it's not great for a company, right? <laughs> because you right. want to be able to retain these people. So we really went to a hybrid strategy. I liked some elements of it, but some elements of it, I think we're, we're failing us. So that's why we went to the summers only. Uh, we did it for four months from June 1st to the end of September, the five-hour workday. And that's when we did 70% of our revenue. So we squeezed people during our high season. We squeezed people for time. And that forced them to figure out creative ways to, to work faster. And then in the off season, we went to startup hours. That allowed us to have that sort of startup culture in, in sort of a hybrid model. And as I've told you, you know, we now we're doing it only in years following where we increase revenues, because that's the other thing is people get sort of entitled. The first people in our company that, that we switched it to the five hour workday, they had earned it, right? But, you know, three or four years later, people were coming into the company that had never earned the five hour workday. And they were just treating it like, you know, hey, this is sort of a part time job. And that really wasn't what we were going for. Oh, great. Well, I want to compliment you on your uh, humility uh, (laughs) of, uh, you know, you put yourself way out there in publications and throughout the world saying this is the way to go. And then having gained more experience and wisdom, willing to say, listen, I, I see some flaws in that. And it really depends. And you're sharing your learning with other people. And the fact is, anytime we have a business, there's a lot of factors that go into making it successful. And things are always changing. And so you've got to figure that out. You know, what really creates the optimal point of effectiveness and success for your associates? How do they stay happy? How do they stay productive? And every circumstance is a little different. So Thank you for sharing your experience because everyone's trying to figure out that same thing. What's that optimal level of all these different levers we're trying to pull to create successful enterprises and serve the public the best we can? Yeah, and I think that I've learned that out of necessity. You can't be afraid to change your mind. The market is changing so fast today, and we're, we operate in sort of disruptive business models, you know, direct-to-consumer. You know, we were a big uh, seller on Amazon for a while, like 50% of our revenues. We walked away from that, and we walked away from maybe $4 million in revenues like three years ago. because We said, that ship has sailed. You know, you can no longer sell through Amazon and be profitable. So you really have to change your thinking every few years. If you don't, I think in the modern business environment, you're going to get swallowed up pretty quickly. Right. Well, that's good. Now, let's just think about this a decade later. So you were on Shark Tank 10 years ago. Uh, Yeah, about nine years ago. About nine years ago. So how has winning on ABC's Shark Tank continue to change your life? You know, the interesting thing about Shark Tank, and it's funny, I'm on a a group on Facebook of people, prior people who've been on Shark Tank. It's called like Shark Tank Pals. And you can only get there if you've been on Shark Tank. And people are in there airing their grievances and stuff like that or sharing, you know, secrets and whatever. But there's the funny thing is a lot of these people are like, as soon as they're on Shark Tank, all of their friends assume they're, you know, like a millionaire and they're successful and all of this. (laughs) And it's kind of a joke Ah. because you go on that show and really, you know, you get about four days of uh, heightened traffic to your website and then it's gone. It's just a wave that sort of washes over you. Now, when we went on, uh, my companies, I've always built them by sort of search engine optimization. So we tend to get a lot of we create great ta- content and then get links into our content. And that raises our presence within sort of organic search results. So when I went on Shark Tank, I was out there getting media 
about our Shark Tank appearance. And for the specific purpose of getting links back to my website from, you know, abc.com or, you know, this newspaper or this business journal or stuff like that. So we ended up getting maybe 12 or 15 articles, pretty well-placed articles about this little com- surf company is going to be on this TV show. And that is really what made the difference for us. It raised our search profile and the trust in our brand and our uh, link profile. And that had a perpetual benefit for us. I mean, it's kind of PR today is really has a perpetual benefit if you can get links back to your your website. That's what we did. And so that's had a lasting effect. But a lot of companies, I'm telling you, the, the Shark Tank effect just sort of washes over you. And I think you can get a little intoxicated with the idea that, hey, we were a company on Shark Tank and sort of stake your claim on that. And I think that's the wrong move. And I had a lot of my employees telling me the same thing about three or four years after it. That's why we you know, went to the, the five-hour workday. That's why we really tried to define ourselves as this sort of you know, revolutionary you know, direct-to-consumer company rather than just, hey, we run a Shark Tank. Yeah, these are, uh, these are great lessons. Uh, just out of curiosity, Stefan, did you have a publicist that helped you with the social media? Is this something that you had from your own experience where you could take these articles and that might reference them back to your website? How did you do that? Well, when we were on Shark Tank uh, originally, I had just hired my first employee three weeks earlier and we had no money. And I was like, you know, job hunting a year before. Uh, I think in 2010, my income was $9,000. <laughs> we were not hiring oh, wow. any PR firms. And I found actually PR firms are a waste of money, especially for small companies. I mean, if you can afford it, I think it's a nice luxury to have. But I think the best PR is done by sort of the CEO of the company, rolling up your sleeves and, uh, and getting out there and doing it. It's, you know, it's not rocket science. That's how we did it. And it was, it was pretty effective. Okay, well, good. Well, let's just sit. Any final tips you'd like to leave uh, with our listeners today? This has been really terrific. I'm so grateful that you've been so open uh, about sharing your experience. The fact that you've hung in there and kept trying, how have you done that? And then let's get to this last question. How do you hang in there when things get tough? Yeah, I, I just think you got to be able to adjust, adjust on the fly, you know, keep your costs down and, uh, and keep experimenting with, with new things. You know, one takeaway I would have, because uh, a lot of people are somewhat skeptical, especially in you know, America, we had a much better response outside of the U.S., honestly, to the five-hour workday. In Germany, it was huge because they see themselves as you know, the most productive people. It's just not about you know, throwing 80-hour work weeks at something. It's about throwing a reasonable work week and raising your productivity. But a lot of companies, and you mentioned this earlier, this isn't going to work so good for some companies as much as other companies. But my takeaway to most people and most companies would be, I think this can actually work for every company if you just do it as you look at it as a three-month test or almost like efficiency training camp you're going to do. So, you know, tell, say you have a thousand workers, tell your workers, okay, for the summer, we're going to do a five-hour workday. You need to figure out how to work as fast as you were or uh, we'll fire you, basically. So we're going to give you your life back for the summer. It's going to be the greatest summer ever, you know, whatever company. (laughs) And then you figure out how to work faster. And if you're not, you're going to fire. You're going to get fired. Put that pressure on people. I'm telling you, they will find out ways to work at twice the speed that they work at. And then you roll it out. I mean, the plan is to come out of this, you know, in the fall. And when you come out of that in the fall, you'll have trained all your workers to work at twice the speed. Uh, they will have individually identified the productivity tools that they are not using today that they should be using um, because you've applied pressure to them. And I think you'll have a, a workforce that works at twice the speed of the one you had three months prior. 
I think that can work for every business. Okay, really intriguing, really intriguing. Okay, now to the final tips. Anything you'd like to leave, leave with our listeners today? From a five-hour workday perspective, that would be my tip for people to try. Just because I've been in the internet space, I think something really interesting you know, to look at, like there's, there's really two themes that run through our company. And it's, it's really two ways the world has changed. One, the access to the internet and productivity tools and stuff like that has made humans, basically, we have nuclear power at our fingertips. So we have the ability to be you know, 10 times as productive as we were 30 or 40 years ago. And a lot of people aren't using those tools. So I think identify and use those tools and you can become a lot more productive. And if you have a company, you should expect your workers to identify those tools and become more productive. So that's one half of the equation. The Internet has made our workforce more productive. We need to find that productivity and and use it. On the other side of it, globalization has changed uh, what it costs to make products. Um, and that's really what the direct-to-consumer movement is for, you know, tower paddleboards and tower electric bikes. We're basically able to sell half-price paddleboards because we don't use the traditional uh, distribution channels. We just sort of opted all, out of all of those, and we just go direct-to-consumers. But the, the problem is today is you have these new middlemen that have popped up, you know, in the form of basically Amazon and Google. So all of the uh, little middlemen were disintermediated uh, as things went online but now everybody buys things through Amazon or through, you know, Google AdWords or something like that. Amazon and Google are taking 50% of that uh, revenue. So what's happened is we've gone back to retail prices and the entire you know, consumer base has not seen a benefit of globalization. We should be buying products for half of what we bought them for, you know, 20 years ago, uh, but we're not because now we're using these middlemen. So as a consumer, you know, my tip is, you should really, you know, look for direct to consumer. Look how your the things that you're buying, what distribution uh, model they use. It's, it's no longer you get what you pay for. It's you get, you know, what distribution you buy through. Right. And so, how do they buy your products? For example, you, you brought up Amazon, but it sounds like you encourage people or create your marketing model to go direct. Yeah, uh, I mean, if you're buying from Amazon today, it's 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 the equivalent of going to the corner store which is great, super convenient. I buy a lot of stuff from Amazon. But if you want the best deal, you need to go direct to the brands and you need to go to the direct to the brands that have, you know, awakened and said, hey, you know, we're not going to give Amazon 50% of our revenue. We're going to focus on just selling uh, direct and then they're able to lower our prices. That's what we did coming into the pandemic. We dropped our prices about 30%. We said, we're no longer going to advertise. We're no longer going to sell on Amazon. We're going to become a smaller company and give consumers a better deal. So for us, you know, it's towerpaddleboards.com. And it's towerelectricbikes.com. But if you want to find the best direct-to-consumer uh, brands out there, we have a website called nomiddleman.com, which aggregates hundreds of brands across thousands of categories. And you can go find what are the three best people uh, making you know, sneakers. And you can find uh, you know, direct-to-consumer brands that are giving uh, consumers like an incredible deal. So that's what I would recommend. Okay, so fun. Now, you know, I'm sure, again, these are creative thoughts, and there's no doubt, like you said, particularly in the United States, there may be skepticism on the five-hour workday, but everybody has to work that out, and that's great. I mean, the fact you're getting it on the board and say, you know, take a look at this and think about, because we're really saying, how do we make our organizations among the best that they can be, the greatest output, the greatest service, and have a sustainable model? So how do you think uh, COVID will affect all of this kind of thinking? What's been your experience, your thought, especially in terms of uh, work? 
work days. The five-hour workday isn't like some magic bullet or whatever. Yeah. We're, just, okay. we're just spending a part of our time thinking about how we work, not just working, right? And I yeah. think that's, that's really, really important. And what tools you're using. Are you using the correct tools to, to, to work? And I think once you're forced to look at that, you're going to find creative solutions. So there's a lot Good. of different work workday experiments going on. And like you said, you know, COVID has put this sort of constraint upon a lot of companies. I think we found some interesting things in education. We found some interesting things. We found some things that certainly don't work in education. You know, I think a lot of the online learning, especially for high school kids, and is, is, is failing, really. But for uh, companies, you know, we don't have trade shows now. Do we need trade shows? No, we don't have business trips. Do we need to fly across the country to, uh, you know, meet in person? Or was that just a big collective, you know, waste of time? <laughs> I think we're yeah. going to. Uh, do we need, you know, offices? Or was that a collective waste of time? And then personally, for me, I think uh, remote working is not the way to go. I mean, we do a five-hour workday, but I want everybody on the field at the same time in the same place. So you get this sort of idea sex, sort of the exchange of ideas among people working on hard problems in a, in a, in a similar space. So I'm not hip, hugely hip on uh, remote work, but I think we're experimenting with how we work. And I think that is the good thing. We're thinking about how we work. Yeah, good job. Great. Well, this has been so fun. Let's repeat one more time uh, for our listeners how they can find out about what you're doing and how to how to have access to your products and also the middleman.com, I think you said. Very interesting. Yeah. So uh, the book, if you want to read more about the, the workday and the history of work, really, uh, the five-hour workday books available on Amazon. So our companies, uh, and it's easy to track me down. We're a small company. You can just go onto our websites and email anybody and you can find me, uh, towerpaddleboards.com. Uh, direct to consumer paddleboards and then tower electric bikes, direct to consumer electric bikes. And I'm telling you, uh, an electric bike will, will change your life. I truly believe that. I mean, people are, will just be amazed once they try it. And then uh, no middleman.com. That's sort of the, uh, the Amazon antidote. Okay. Now, because maybe some of our listeners will have the same question I have, describe what an e bike looks like. An e bike is, is just basically a bike uh, with a motor on it. But it's an electric motor, so it's silent. And there's a there's a variety. There's probably two, three hundred brands of e-bikes out there. And you know, some of them you can't even tell it's an electric bike. It just looks like a regular bike. The motors are integrated into the, you know, the bars or whatever. And you can spend as much as you know ten thousand dollars on an e-bike. And then there's uh, e-bikes that just sort of slap on a motor and they look like uh, these sort of contraptions and they're really cheaply built. You can buy those for, you know, seven hundred to fifteen hundred dollars. Our bike's a little under 2000 uh, It's a very high-end uh, bike, but we made it to look like a bike, but with you know, off-the-shelf components because there's a lot of uh, e-bike companies coming into business and going out of business and a lot of, uh, you know, okay, well, now I have this bike and there's nobody to work on it or the, the parts are no longer available. So we're very conscious of that. You know, we've been in the direct-to-consumer game for 10 years. Um, so we're, we're building this sort of a slow-growth company and we're building a long-term brand. We think that one day we will be the biggest e-bike company in the world. But, you know, we're on a path to get there in, in 20 to 30 years. Well, Orville and Wilbur would be proud of you. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, Stefan, for being part of this show today, the Becoming Your Best show. That's, that's the spirit of it, everything we've been talking about. Really great visit, wonderful ideas, and we wish you all the best in what you're doing. Hey, thank you. Uh, thank you for having me on, Steve. To all of our listeners, uh, it is such a delight to be associated with you. We appreciate your spirit, your interest, your 
dedication to learn and improve yourself. Uh, and the very fact that you do that is a great example to everybody that you associate with. So wishing you a great day. This is Steve Schallenberger with Becoming Your Best Global Leadership, signing off. Thank you for listening. Would you like help to apply the 12 principles of highly successful leaders in your life, in your family, or in your organization? Call us today at 888-690-8764 to speak with a helpful representative to evaluate your situation and how we can help. Or you can visit becomingyourbest.com. Whether it's a corporate training event, keynote, workshop, trainer certification, or personal coaching, it would be our pleasure to serve your needs. Once again, call 888-690-8764 or visit becomingyourbest.com today.